one of the great tasks of the church of the Lord Jesus is to preach the gospel of salvation through his son. And in our congregation, as we expound different parts of the Bible from the Old Testament and the New Testament, the gospel is regularly preached as it comes up in the different portions of the books that we're studying. But some months ago, as the elders of the congregation were talking and praying about the work of the congregation, we all felt that it would be a valuable thing if from time to time we stepped aside from our normal exposition and focused very specially in on the gospel. And so we decided, as was announced several weeks ago, that on the first Lord's Day evening of each month, uh, we're going to plan to, to focus particularly on the gospel of salvation through Christ. And that's what we're going to do this evening, make a, making a beginning in the first month of a new year. God willing, we'll return uh, to the series on the Ten Commandments next Lord's Day evening. I'd like now to read from the book of the Acts, uh, chapter 16, uh, beginning to read at verse 11 and reading on to verse 34. This account tells us of Paul and Luke and their companions arriving in the city of Philippi in northern Greece and what happened while they were there. Luke chapter, uh, Acts chapter 16 verse 11. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are showing you the way of salvation. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl 
realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of God, the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Amen. We do pray that God the Holy Spirit will bless his word to all of us who hear it. The message which God has given me to bring to you this evening is found in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. The final words of the verse. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Seven short words. Seven words of one syllable each. They couldn't be simpler. A question which takes only two seconds to ask. What must I do to be saved? And yet to ask that question and to mean it and to understand what you're asking 
is the second most important thing that any human being can ever do. To ask that question for yourself means the difference between a life that is real and a life that is ruined. It means the difference between happiness and horror. Between triumph and tragedy. It means the difference between heaven and hell. The most important thing you can ever do in your life is to act on the answer to the question what must I do to be saved? But you can't get the answer until you ask the question. And the purpose of my preaching tonight is very simple. It is to persuade you if you have never asked that question for yourself before to ask it this evening you're not coming here to meet a lot of nice people you're not coming here to say well that was an interesting sermon or a boring sermon or whatever you're coming here that you may be confronted with this question but you may say to yourself, have I ever asked this question? Really meaning it and longing to know the answer. The first man to ask this question hadn't planned to ask it. He hadn't meant to ask it. It had never crossed his mind that he would ask it. But he did. And if we can understand why the Philippian jailer asked that question. The reasons which persuaded him. Then we'll be able to see why you should ask it for yourself. What must I do? That's, that's the question for each of you. What must I do to be saved? Why should you ask that? The first reason is because you need to be saved. Because you need to be saved. If we had had to pick out someone in the city of Philippi who would have asked that question, this Philippian jailer would have been one of the last people we would ever have imagined. Here is a most unusual and unexpected questioner. Philippi was a retirement city for veterans from the Roman army. Most of the population had fought in the legions as Roman soldiers. And when you had done your 20 years or your 25 years, you were given a plot of land, a sum of money, and Roman citizenship and you went and lived wherever that plot of land was and there were thousands of such plots in the city of Philippi 
And this jailer was almost certainly a retired soldier, probably a non-commissioned officer, a sergeant. And he had been given a part-time or a retirement job. He was put in charge of the city jail. So we have a retired soldier, probably an officer, in charge of the city jail. This was not a nervous, sensitive sort of individual. This was not somebody who gathered pressed flowers and wrote poetry. This was a tough, battle-hardened, hard-bitten individual. A man who had seen blood and death and suffering and cruelty. A hard man. A tough character. And yet when we meet him, he has collapsed onto the ground. That's what the Greek means. He's lying in a heap on the floor. And the scripture tells us that he is trembling. And he is begging desperately. For an answer to this question, what must I do to be saved? Now we have a bit of a problem with the word saved in Northern Ireland. Because for many people it has come to mean a particular narrow type of religious experience. And when many people inside and outside the church hear the word saved or somebody getting saved, they have this particular picture in mind. Perhaps a service in in a mission hall or a service in an evangelistic church. Perhaps somebody putting up their hand or walking to the front or signing a card and they're getting saved. Perhaps you think of the sort of people who go about with Bible texts on notice boards down Royal Avenue. Or the sort of people who are always asking everyone, brother, sister, are you saved? And these are the sort of connotations that gather around this word. But that's not what the Philippian jailer was thinking about. And that's not what the text means for us. Some of these things may be the way to salvation. They may be the means by which men and women are saved. They may be the road which leads to the destination of salvation. But being saved is far wider and richer and fuller And more glorious than the cliché which some of the best of people from the best of motives have made of it. It is something beautiful and attractive and fulfilling and liberating. In the scripture it is an enormous word with a wide range of meaning. It means being saved from danger. If you were drowning in a stormy sea 
and felt your strength going and the waves coming over your head and the fear of death gripped you and you realized that you were choking and drowning and going to die and suddenly a strong hand lifted you out. You realized that you weren't going to die after all. You were going to live. You would have been saved. Sometimes it's used of freedom from disease. Some awful disease grips you, malaria let's say, and you're shivering and shaking and blinding headaches and your whole life is a misery and it goes on for weeks and months and the disease has you in its grip and then a doctor comes and prescribes medicine and it deals with the disease and overcomes it and it is gone and all the pain and the discomfort and the wretchedness and the agony have gone and you feel well enough again. That is being saved. Sometimes it means to be protected and kept safe. In our national anthem, we sing, God save the Queen. Long live the Queen. Being kept, may she be protected from enemy and danger. In the, New in the Old Testament it means freedom from slavery, from enemies, from oppressors. Sometimes it means health. It means wholeness. It means harmony. It means being at peace with yourself and with your fellow human beings and with the environment and with God. Sometimes it's used to refer to the glory and beauty of God himself being given to human beings. It's a wonderful word. To be saved means to be free from everything that would harm you or damage you or hurt you or injure you or spoil your life. And to be blessed with everything that would enrich you and satisfy you and fulfill you and make you truly and fully human you need to be saved now of course the jailer wouldn't have understood all of this but he was a man in turmoil a violent earthquake had shaken not only the foundations of the prison, but the foundations of his whole life. He was caught up in terrifying events that he couldn't handle, he couldn't explain. The earthquake, the doors of the prison opened, the prisoners set free. He was a man who had just come face to face with his own death. If a Roman jailer allowed his prisoners to escape, he was executed. We read in Acts 12, 19, that when, prison, when Peter escaped from prison, King Herod had the guards executed. They were put to death the next day. And this jailer knew that his life was nearly over. And he took out his short, stabbing sword and placed it at his throat. He was looking into his own grave and he realized he needed to be saved 
My friend, you may not be, you're not in a sense in the position of the, of the Philippian jailer. You're not, I hope, contemplating suicide. You may even feel that your life is, is quite secure and reasonably happy. But in reality, if you are not a Christian, your needs are exactly the same as this Philippian jailer. And you need to be saved just as much as he did. As you sit listening to me, you're dying. You're dying. Your life is passing away. Your body will age. Your powers will fail. Your mind will go. Death is the inevitable and inescapable end for you and for me. And you're surrounded by dangers that you can't do much about. Illness could strike you at any time. No matter how young or healthy you are. An illness that would blind you. That could cripple you. That could take away your reason. Or your mobility. That could cut short your life. Death could strike you at any moment. This could be the last day of your life. You don't know. I don't know. In your life you'll know disappointment and frustration and loneliness. You won't achieve your dreams. You won't do all you hope for. There is no way you can make yourself permanently happy or permanently secure. And far more serious than all of that is the fact, and it is a fact, that you have an appointment with God. You are going to meet God. You are going to stand before God at the day of judgment. Whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen. And when you stand before God, he's going to examine your whole life. And he's going to say to you, you have broken my law. You have broken my commandments. And because of that, you deserve to be cast into hell forever. That is the truth. That is the truth. You have an appointment with God. You can't escape it. Burying your head in the sand won't help you to escape it. Trying to forget about it won't help you to escape it. Running away Filling your life with other things won't help you to escape it. You're sitting in the train of time. And that train is running every day, every moment, towards the cliffs of judgment. And you need to be saved. You need to be saved. That's the first reason why you should ask this question. And don't think to yourself, 
but it doesn't apply to me. It does apply to you. If you've never trusted Jesus for yourself, you're lost and you need to be saved. But then there's a second reason why you should ask this question. Because you know where to ask. Because you know where to ask. This jailer knew who to ask. Two of his prisoners. They were well known in the city of Philippi. A couple of travelling teachers. And for a number of days they had been followed throughout the streets by a demon-possessed slave girl. And she kept shouting one sentence over and over again loudly after them in the streets. These men are servants of the Most High God who are showing you the way of salvation. These men are servants of the Most High God who are showing you the way of salvation. And she shouted and shouted for hour after hour and day after day until Paul set her free. And the whole, is, the whole city had heard about these men, servants of the Most High God, who are showing you the way of salvation. And so when this jailer was alarmed and disturbed and terrified, who more natural to ask than these two strangers, servants of the Most High God, who are showing you the way of salvation? And so he naturally came to them and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I've heard about you men. I've heard what the slave girl said. Perhaps it's true. And these were very unusual men. He'd never met anyone like them before. He perhaps locked up hundreds of prisoners. But never prisoners like these men. Their backs had been torn open by a savage beating. And then with exquisite cruelty, he had taken them and fixed their feet in the stocks. And, and the Roman stocks are not like the English stocks. You've seen pictures of people sitting in the stocks with their hands and their feet, and their feet are close together. The Roman stocks were instruments of torture. The legs were spread as far apart as they could possibly be spread. And the victim was clamped in with his body twisted in a position of extreme agony and left there for hour after hour. It was a brutal instrument of torture. And then the jailer, not only had they been savagely beaten, not only were they locked into these instruments of torture, but we are told that he put them into the inner cell. The outer cell of any Roman prison would have been bad enough. The inner cell would have been a chamber of horrors. The darkness, the filth, the foul smell. The water dripping from the ceiling. The squeaking of the rats as they ran over the bare legs and over the back of their victims. And here were Paul and Silas with their backs bleeding and their legs twisted. Locked in this vile, dark, 
dungeon. And what were these two men doing? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing praises to God. And the other prisoners were listening to Many sounds had come from that inner cell. Curses, oaths, blasphemy, screaming, pleading. But I venture to suggest that never before had the praise of God been sung in that vile place. And there was a hush over the whole prison. And throughout all the cells, the prisoners were sitting, listening, to the voices of the strange, beaten, tortured men who from the very depths of the dungeon were praising their God. And then when the earthquake came and they were set free, they didn't run away. They didn't try to escape. Instead, they showed a real concern and love For their jailer. For the man who had locked them in the stocks and closed them in the cell. And Paul in compassion and kindness cried out to the jailer, don't harm yourself. I doubt if many of the other prisoners were saying, don't harm yourself. They were saying, go on, go on. Stick the sword in. Kill yourself. Not Paul and Silas. The jailer had never met people like this before. Never. So calm, so serene, so full of faith and love and hope, so kind towards people who had hurt them, with such an arresting message of the way of salvation. So when he was concerned, he went to the people who were different. And he asked them, what must I do to be saved? And my friend, I speak to you tonight who are not yet Christians. You know people, don't you? Who are different. You know people who are different. People who are not just religious, not just church scores, but people who are genuinely different. They seem to have found an answer. They've got an inner security, a peace, a calmness. They take an interest in you as a person. Not for what they can get out of you, but because they care about you. And you matter to them. And they show it. And they're Christians. They belong to the family of the church. And Jesus is their saviour. And there's something special about them. This man asked the question because he had somebody to ask. There was someone there. And he believed that they could give him an answer. How terrible it would have been if the jailer had had no one to ask. How terrible it would have been if he'd just been surrounded by cursing criminals. 
And he had said, what must I do to be saved? And they had just laughed or shrugged their shoulders. But there were two Christians there. That's why he asked. There were two Christians there. And he knew they were different. And my friend, you are in a happy position. For you know Christians. You don't just have to stumble blindly wondering, is there anybody who could help me? You don't have to call out desperately into an ignorant emptiness. There are people here in this building tonight who understand the gospel and can tell you the gospel and can point you to this book in which the gospel is contained. And you'll find that answer nowhere else. But here you will find it. He asked because he needed to be saved. So do you. He asked because he had someone to ask. So do you. If you don't know anyone, ask me. And thirdly, you should ask this question because there is something which you yourself must do. What must I do? The jailer isn't going to commit suicide anymore. He's gone past that. He's abandoned his despair. There's a little flicker of hope now in his heart. He's maybe a bit confused. He may still think that he can save himself. He doesn't yet know much about the Lord Jesus Christ. But at least he realizes that in the danger that he is, there is something he must do. That's a very simple, obvious thing. And yet how many people miss the point? What must I do? What must I do? There's something, my friend, that you must do. It's not just a matter of feelings. Feeling that you would like to be saved. Longing to be a Christian. Wishing that you were closer to God. There's something you must do. It's not just a matter of sitting and waiting and hoping that somehow, someday, you will wake up a Christian. There's something you must do. There's a step that you need to take. There's an activity that you need to perform. There's an initiative that you need to seize. What must I do? You've got to do something. Something decisive. Something concrete, something significant. If you do nothing, you will not be saved. You will never be saved. There's something that you have got to do. Have you done it? Have you done it? You must know that. We know what we do. What must I do? There's something that you must do. No one else can do it for you. Young people, your parents can't do it for you. 
Your father, your mother can't do it for you. Your brothers or sisters can't do it for you. Your minister can't do it for you. Your friends can't do it for you. There is no one else can do it for you. Out of all the millions of people in this world, only you can do it. What must I do? You've got to do it. You've got to do it. If you don't do it, no one else can ever do it for you. If you don't do it, it will not be done. If you don't do it, you'll not be saved. You'll be lost. There's something you have to do. And you must do it for yourself. And you must do it. What must I do? It's not an option. It's not just a nice idea. It's not a preference. It's not one among many ways of salvation. This is an absolute necessity, an essential, a must. There is no other way. And I say to every one of you tonight who's not a Christian, do you clearly understand? And I've tried to make it as plain as I can. Do you understand that there is something which you must do if you're to be saved? Have you got that clearly, unalterably in your mind? Have you grasped it? Young people, have you grasped it? There is something you must do in order to be saved. Otherwise, it won't happen. You'll not be saved. You'll be lost forever. Here, this question brings us to the absolute, bare, essential, and basic, stripped down to the ultimate necessity. What must? I do to be saved. You've got to ask this question because there's something that you must do. If somebody else could do it for you, you wouldn't need to ask the question. If you would just wake up some morning a Christian, you wouldn't need to ask the question. But there's something you must do. Therefore you ask the question. Several doctors have told me that one of the sad experiences of any doctor's life is to look into the face of a patient concerned about serious disease and tell them that there is no human hope for them. Now supposing Paul and Silas had to look down at that trembling man in his despair and fear and anguish saying sirs sirs what must I do to be saved supposing they had had to say I'm sorry I'm very sorry there's nothing you can do 
You're too bad. You're too sinful. You've committed too many crimes. You've gone on too long. You're just not qualified. What a tragedy that would have been. What a heartbreaking question. Someone pleading for hope and for life. And the apostles having to say there's no hope. There's no answer. Supposing I had to say that to some of you this evening. I'm sorry. The gospel's just for certain people. And I'm afraid that you don't measure up. You're not good enough to qualify. But thank God. Thank God that's not the case. If I'm spared at the first Sabbath evening in February, I want to look in more detail at the answer that Paul and Silas gave. But of course I must touch on it now too. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. And note this. I think this is wonderful. He's speaking to the Philippian jailer. A man who has cruelly treated Christians. And shut them up in prison. And who is the man who's speaking? The Jerusalem jailer. Because before Paul became a Christian, he imprisoned Christians. And he beat them. And he tortured them. And he put them to death. Here's one jailer talking to another jailer. Here's one persecutor talking to another persecutor. Here's one cruel, wicked man talking to another cruel, wicked man. But the first man has been saved. He's been converted. He's been changed. And the ex-jailer, the ex-persecutor, the man with the blood of Christians on his hands, looks at this fearful man and he says, I tell you this, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And I know what I'm talking for I was once in your position and I believed and I was saved too. What a wonderful answer this is. This jailer was desperate. I get the impression as I read this story that he'd have done anything. Anything. What must I do? You tell me. I'll give my body to be burned. I'll give all my money away. I'll do anything you want. Paul says, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In a sense, it's not really doing anything. It's trusting. It's receiving. This is the greatest answer. I'm sorry, this is the greatest reason why you should ask the question Tonight, because the answer is so simple. So simple. So kind. So generous. So free. 
so beautiful. The answer of a saviour who has paid for sin. And all you have to do is trust him. And you will be saved. You will be saved. If the answer was terribly, terribly difficult, you might hesitate to ask the question. If I was going to tell you something really, really hard, you might say, well, there's not much point in asking. I wouldn't be able to do it. But the answer isn't like that. What must I do? You need to be saved. And I'm telling you how to be saved. And there's something you have to do. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. My friend. I urge you. Will you not believe in him? Will you not lay aside your rebellion, your doubts, and recognize that he is the Savior? If you trust him, he'll forgive you. He'll look after you. He'll give you all the strength you need. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen.